Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. I know how popular our Acker Beaker Journal crossovers are with our fans. We are working hard on another one. No release date for it yet, but it is coming. We have another round of interviews to do, and then I am sure we will set a date. Also, how awesome is Wednesdays with Mike and Dan with Ohio Mysteries Backroads? They released another gem about the Gore Orphanage in Vermilion. If you have not listened to that one, Be sure to check out last Wednesday's episode. Remember, Wednesdays at 8 p.m. is Ohio Mysteries Backroads with Mike and Dan. Then on Sundays, 8 p.m., Paula and I release Ohio Mysteries episode. Now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us as always is our storyteller, and award-winning journalist who spent 30-plus years telling these kinds of stories of the Akron Beacon Journal, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. The Logan County Sheriff's Department considers the Moody murders a closed case. Six people were found dead in two homes in the spring of 2005, with one of the victims cradling a rifle. It was quickly deemed a murder-suicide. This has never sat well with the people in the small city of Bell Fountain. They knew the alleged killer, 18-year-old Scott Moody, who was set to graduate from high school that very day. Investigators say he's the one who rolled out of bed at sunrise and set about killing his mother and two friends as they slept and his grandparents in another home as they were in the midst of making breakfast. But there are some lingering problems with the scenario. First and foremost, there was a witness. Scott's younger sister, Stacy, was also there and shot twice in the neck. But she survived and insisted to detectives from her hospital bed that the shooter was a large man with gray hair, not her brother. There was the question of how Scott, who had been shot in the head twice, could have had the capacity to pull the trigger a second time. Besides, exactly whose rifle was it? Nobody could say definitively where the firearm even came from. There also remains the puzzle 
of motive. Those who knew Scott said, yeah, he was known to have a temper, even a bad one at times. But nobody could find a homicidal trigger, a reason why he would suddenly wake up for breakfast on the morning of a graduation that he had been celebrating the night before and annihilate his family. Finally, complicating matters even further is the fact that within weeks of the carnage, one of the sheriff investigators on the case began an inappropriate physical relationship with the very child who had survived that night, a matter for which he was criminally charged and lost his job. Following that was the revelation that Stacy's murdered grandfather reportedly called the sheriff the day before the murders to share what he knew about deputies having sex with underage girls in the community. This is a messy one, folks. And despite the case being officially closed, a real mystery. This is the story of the Moody Massacre. Sunday, May 29, 2005. It was a day of celebration. 50 graduating seniors at Riverside High School in DeGraff. That's a small village in rural Logan County, just down the road from the county seat of Bell Fountain. We're looking forward to walking across the stage in an all-important rite of passage that very afternoon. For 18-year-old Scott Moody, graduation was a formality. He was already practicing the career that he wanted for himself. Growing up, he'd been active in 4-H and FFA, Future Farmers of America, stepping stones to his future. Scott was born in 1986 to Steve Moody and Kay Schaefer in Bell Fountain. His parents eventually split. Scott hadn't talked to his dad in a couple of years, though Steve Moody lived just a few miles away. Scott was raised in his mom's farming family. They owned Shaker Farms, where at least three generations of the family had grown crops and raised cattle. Scott had a 15-year-old sister still living at home, too, Stacy. They lived on Ohio Route 47, just outside the Bell Fountain city limits. Next door were their grandparents, Gary and Cheryl Schaefer, although next door is a relative term in a rural community. There was a quarter mile of corn and soybean fields separating their farmhouses. That Saturday night before graduation, Scott, Stacy, and other local teens attended a pre-graduation party at a friend's house. But when off-duty sheriff deputies arrived to hang out, they thought it was too weird trying to sneak a drink of alcohol around sworn law officers, so they decided to finish their celebrating at home. Four guests went with Scott and Stacy, and they spent the rest of the night watching a movie, playing some pool, eating chips, and finally dozing off. Two male friends 
and their mom's boyfriend left the house in the early morning for jobs and other responsibilities, the last of them leaving at 6 a.m. That left five people still at home, Scott and Stacy Moody, their 37-year-old mom, Kay Schaefer, and two friends, 19-year-old Megan Karras and 14-year-old Paige Harshbarger. Paige was Stacy's best friend and, apparently, Scott's new girlfriend. Scott and a longtime sweetheart had recently broken up, and for the past two or three weeks, Scott and Paige, despite the four years between them, considered themselves a couple. The first time anyone in the outside world knew something horrible had happened inside the Moody Schaefer home that morning was at 10.35 a.m. A call came into 911. A breathless female who was reporting to the Logan County dispatcher what she was finding as she moved about the home, making one gruesome discovery after another. The caller was Nicole, a stepsister of the Moody children. In a trembling voice, Nicole told the dispatcher her sister Stacy had called her for help, saying she couldn't wake up her mother and that people in the house had been beaten up. Nicole, of course, learned quickly upon her arrival that it was far, far worse. Later, Stacy would share her view of what happened in a short 2016 YouTube documentary called Porcelain Dolls, The Stacy Moody Story. She said she had seen a friend off to work that morning, then returned to her bed in her second floor room and went back to sleep. She was later awakened by a man, a stranger, pointing a gun to her head. She said he had a large frame, wore a blue shirt, and had gray hair. The man shot her, the bullet piercing her neck and causing instant horrible pain. She watched as the man left her room. She heard two more gunshots in the distance. Then the man returned to her room, saw she was trying to move, and shot her again. Stacy may have lost consciousness for a time as her blood level dropped, but she managed to stand up, though she struggled to remain on her feet. She went to her mother's room and tried to wake her up, but her mom had two black eyes, and she wondered if someone had beaten her up. When her mother didn't respond, Stacy went down the stairs to the home's first floor. She fell into a chair and passed out for a time, then woke up and tried to move about the house again. She found her friend Megan, who had fallen asleep in the living room, but Megan also wouldn't respond. Stacy remembers screaming, or at least trying to scream, but there was very little sound. Both bullet wounds were in her neck. Stacy heard her mom's phone ringing and tried to get to it. She kept passing out, and she missed the call. But with her phone now in hand, she placed a call of her own to her stepsister, Nikki, 
and in a raspy voice filled with terror, begged her to come. Nicole placed the call to 911 as soon as she arrived and saw Stacy seated in the recliner covered in blood. The audio of the call to dispatchers is terrifying and heartbreaking, with Nikki relating her experience of finding each body in real time. The first deputy was on the scene almost instantly at 10.45 a.m. He found Megan on the first floor. She was shot once in the right side of her neck. Upstairs, he found Kay Schaefer in her own bed, dead on her back. She had not been beaten. Nobody showed any signs of putting up a struggle. Her blackened eyes were from one gunshot to the left temple. And in another bedroom, two more victims, 14-year-old Paige, shot once in the left temple, and Scott Moody, lying next to her. He was shirtless, dressed only in jeans, with his legs dangling off the bed, and, according to the first deputy on the scene, clutching a twenty-two caliber semi-automatic Marlin rifle with his thumb still on the trigger. He had two wounds, a shot to his neck and then a second shot through a barrel placed in his mouth. All of the shots were close range, with a gun barrel touching or very near the skin of each victim. Paramedics arrived and tended to Stacy, though Nobody really expected her to make it. So even as she was being whisked away and life-flighted to a hospital, investigators were hoping she would use her last breath to answer one question. Do you know who did this? She answered them, no. This horror show wasn't over yet. Deputies went to the house of the grandparents to inform them of the loss of their daughter and grandson and Stacy's possibly mortal wound, only to find Gary and Cheryl Schaefer dead on their own kitchen floor. They'd been in the middle of making breakfast, eggs out and ready to cook, two glasses of orange juice on the table. Both had been shot in the neck. So it appeared Everything must have happened sometime after 6 a.m. when the last guest left the house, but before 10.45 a.m. when Nicole called 911. It seemed an odd time for something like that to happen. The people who had left the house that morning said nothing out of place happened the night before. In an interview later, 18-year-old Brett Davidson a family friend who left at 6 a.m. to do chores on his own family's farm, said he woke up the mom, Kay, to let her know he was leaving. She got up and walked him to the door and invited him to come back and have breakfast later. Davidson said the whole evening and morning were as normal as could be. There was no tension, no hint of worry or trouble, He recalls Scott saying it'll be nice to sleep in because there wasn't a whole lot to do before the graduation ceremony. That high school graduation ceremony went on as planned. Authorities waited until moments before the event to inform school officials that Scott and Megan, who was also a member of the graduating class, 
would not be in attendance. The sheriff waited until the last minute to notify them, hoping the news would be slow to make the rounds so that students could enjoy their moment. But it's hard to keep a secret in a small town, and by many accounts, word of the tragedy traveled by whispers through the assembly. By the time the ceremony was over, the sheriff's office had all but closed the case, arriving quickly and confidently at a story of what happened. That Sunday evening, in a 7 p.m. press conference attended by local and national media, Logan County Sheriff Michael Henry offered this scenario. Between 7 and 10 a.m., Scott Moody got out of bed, walked a quarter mile to his grandparents' home, and shot them dead as they made breakfast. It was unclear where Scott would have gotten the rifle. People said they didn't know him to own one. Thought they said he had hunted once or twice in his life, but actually abhorred guns. One theory was that Scott used a rifle found in his grandparents' home. Though the brother of the dead grandfather insisted he knew all of the guns owned by Gary Schaefer, and the Marlin rifle found with Scott was not one of them. After killing his grandparents, the sheriff concluded, Scott returned home, reloaded the rifle, and roamed the house, shooting everyone in turn as they slept. His theory was that Megan Karras was killed first as she slept in the living room. Then Kay was killed in her bedroom without waking up. Paige was killed next, then Stacy was shot. Finally, Scott went to the bed where Paige lay and shot himself twice. Case closed. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Stacy's recovery was nothing short of a miracle. The bullets had shattered two vertebrae, severed an artery leading to her brain, and damaged her vocal cords. She spent 12 days at Ohio State University Medical Center in Columbus, most of that time in the ICU. She never wavered from her story, insisting the shooter wasn't her brother. The large, gray-haired, blue-shirted man who shot her could not be mistaken for her baby-faced 18-year-old sibling with brown hair and a small 5-foot, 8-inch frame. The gun has been a never-ending source of confusion in this story. The first deputy on the scene, you'll recall, said the rifle was in Scott's hands, But apparently, an EMT checking the bodies at the scene said that while the gun was within Scott's reach, 
he wasn't touching it. Also, while it's not unheard of for a suicide victim to shoot themselves twice, the idea of it was certainly enough to have people questioning why Scott would first shoot himself in the neck behind the ear, and then how he could have the capacity to readjust his aim and shoot himself in the mouth. The coroner went as far as to say Scott even likely switched hands between shots. Now to the question of motive. This is a real gray area. Most people who knew Scott could not conceive of him doing such a thing. But Scott did have anger issues. The girlfriend who split up with him a couple of months before the shooting said it was the cause of their breakup that he was prone to tantrums and rage and, quite frankly, scared her. And then a surprising call from a domestic violence counselor who told investigators that three months before the shooting, Kay Schaefer had called their office to ask how she could go about removing her abusive son from her home. Kay never called the office back, so the counselor did not know if Kay had tried to take any action. A third source who noted Scott's temper was Scott's father. Scott stopped seeing his dad, Stephen, a couple of years earlier, but Steve later said that when Stacy came to live with him after the shooting, she revealed that Scott had, on occasion, hit and cursed at their mother. And yet, if the family was aware of any reason why Scott's anger would suddenly turn homicidal, they never spoke of it. Publicly, at least, nobody could come up with a reason why Scott would want to end the most important people in his life. Now, people could have used Scott's temper to defend the theory that this terrible tragedy was the doing of an emotionally unstable teenager who feared his graduation into an adult life and the stressful transition it represented. But then this happened. One of the investigators in the case was Lucas County Sheriff Deputy John Stout, And within three months of the murders, the 36-year-old law enforcement officer had begun an inappropriate relationship with Stacy Moody. 15-year-old Stacy, as I said, went to live with her father and stepmother after being released from the hospital. And that fall, in the fall of 2005, Stacy's stepmother picked up the landline to hear Stacy on the phone talking to Deputy Stout, making plans for the weekend. I need to pause here for a moment to note that at this time, the Logan County Sheriff's Department was already the subject of many rumors. The deputies were involved with drugs and preying on underage girls. As a matter of fact, Stacy's grandfather wanted to talk to the sheriff about it. And one day before the murder, Gary Schaefer called Sheriff Henry and left a message asking him to call back. In a book called Saving Stacy, The Untold Story of the Moody Massacre by attorney Rob St. Clair, St. Clair says a source told him 
what the subject of that call was to be. Gary Schaefer was outraged after learning from his daughter, Kay, that his granddaughter and other young girls were the victims of what was being called road warrior sex. Deputies enticing local teens for rendezvous in their cruisers. It was the beginning of the Memorial Day weekend when Gary made that call to the sheriff, so he didn't get a return call. And since Gary was dead a day later, he never would. Now, fast forward back to October of 2005 when Stacy's stepmom hears this inappropriate conversation between her stepdaughter and a sheriff investigator and believes it to be evidence that the rumors are true. She and her husband, Stacy's dad, force the issue with authorities and take their complaint to Children's Services. Stacy at first didn't want to talk about what happened with Deputy Stout, and with no independent evidence of what exactly took place, prosecutors did what they often do in such cases and sought a deal. In the deal, Stout was fired, the accusation being that regardless of what Stout and Stacy were doing, it was happening during Stout's shift and in Stout's car, and so he wasn't doing his job, and that alone was grounds for dismissal. Also, although a grand jury indicted Stout on two counts of felony sexual battery, prosecutors and Stout agreed to a single charge of attempted child endangering, which was a second-degree misdemeanor. Stout's confession was that he once attempted to speed when Stacy was in his county-issued car, that being the charge of attempted child endangering. Stout was given one year of probation, and Stacy, who was 18 years old by that time, finally found her voice. In a written statement, she said, John S. took advantage of me at a time in my life when I didn't know what could happen next. My family was dead, gone forever. He told me that he cared about me, that I was nice looking, everything I wanted to hear. And she finished with a direct statement to Stout. I want you to be ready to look God in the face on the final judgment day, but mostly I want you to be held accountable for what you did to me. The author of that book that I mentioned, Rob St. Clair, took to the internet a few years ago to answer a question that many of his readers had. Did Rob St. Clair, after his thorough investigation of everything, think Scott Moody killed his family and friends that morning? St. Clair, who said he was in Stacy's hospital room when she gave a statement to Dr. Michael Failer, the county coroner, said, no, he's convinced Scott did not. Here are the problems he sees in his own words. One, 
The most disturbing photograph I saw showed where Scott had been dragged from the top of his bed close to the headboard to where his feet were now firmly planted on the ground as if he might have been sitting on the end of his bed. The railroad blood tracks on the bed from the headboard on down were clear evidence that he had been dragged from the top of his bed to this new position. With apparently Scott's blood spatter on the headboard, it would have been impossible for him to have done this himself, especially after he had already been shot in the head. Number two. The first rifle shot was behind the ear. Hold a yardstick up behind your ear and try and figure out how hard it might be to pull the trigger especially with the end of the barrel not touching your head. Not impossible, but highly improbable. Then, move your body down to the end of the bed and shoot yourself again, this time in the mouth. When convenient, place the rifle in a straight alignment next to your body and put your thumb in the trigger guard. How anyone could accept this implausible explanation is beyond me, he said. St. Clair went on to say this. Everyone who knew Scott, from his best friend, other classmates, teachers, those who knew him in the community, all said the same thing. There is simply no way Scott could have done this. I was impressed with the fact that Scott, a farm boy, apparently did not like to handle firearms. This person was simply not capable of being the shooter. St. Clair continued, People can have their suspicions regarding Scott's concern about farm finances, discontent with his grandparents, arguments with his mother, but none of it adds up to a credible motive. Mass shootings take something more. Here, Considering the time of day when the shootings happened and the prior evening activities, there was nothing that could have triggered this outrage in Scott's behavior. So, if not Scott, then who? St. Clair said it's impossible to ignore what was known to be going on with sheriff deputies, with their careers on the line, not to mention the potential for criminal charges. One of the troubling events discovered during this period involved a high-ranking deputy. Listen to this. Parents in the community hired a babysitter to take care of their one-year-old daughter. And like most parents, they wanted to be able to look in on how their child was being treated. And they installed a baby cam. One night, When they rewound the tape to watch the day's activities, they spotted an officer in uniform entering the house. Stunned, they watched as the, turns out, very married deputy and their babysitter disrobe and have sex on the family couch. For that, the officer received two weeks suspension without pay. Officially, the Moody case is closed. If you read stories about it, you'll see media outlets don't hedge about who did it. Authorities said Scott Moody was the killer, and that was that. But if you talk about it to folks living in Logan County, 
don't be surprised if they disagree. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to ohiomysteries.com. Also, for more shows like ours, head on over to killerpodcasts.com. We are a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.